When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, Shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Ah! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. Welcome into another edition of the Hangtime Podcast. Sekou Smith here in Atlanta. My main man, John Schumann, is in New Jersey. John Hartzell, behind the glass, is always making it happen. And we are here to do yet another autopsy on a team from around the league. Later in the show, we're going to talk about the Boston Celtics. Again, with Gary Washburn of the Boston Globe. And then with author and veteran journalist Gary Pomerantz, who is a new book out on the Dynasty Celtics and the relationship between Bill Russell and Bob Cousy. Interesting stuff that we will get to shortly. Before we get to all that, how could we not talk about another wild and crazy night around the NBA? Wednesday's shoe, and I get the chance to do game time live and crunch time on Wednesdays. Last night, Jerry Greenberg needed somebody to wipe the sweat from his face. He was so crazy during crunch time. Watching James Harden go bananas on the Knicks at Madison Square Garden. There are trade rumors going around as well. We'll get to those. But the game of the night, shoot, you were there at the Garden, Madison Square Harden, as some people have have, uh, termed it since last night's 61-point outburst from James Harden. Describe the atmosphere in there and just what it was like knowing that he's in the midst of this streak and that he was chasing a little history in the uh, most hallowed building in the league. All right, this is going to sound weird, and feel free to tell me it sounds weird or it sounds stupid. I'll let you, I'll let you say it first. James Hart scored 61 points at, at Madison Square Garden, uh, tied the uh, opponent record in the new new garden mm-hmm. uh, for all the Will Chamberlain fans out there that will, might get upset in the new Madison Square Garden. It didn't feel all that special. What? Honestly, like, I don't know if it is because we've become or I've become kind of numb to what Harden has been doing over the last month or so, Mm -hmm. or that he has the ball so much that it never felt like he was catching fire or anything. But, like, I was in the building for – LeBron has two 50-point games at Madison Square Garden. I think he has, like, a 50 and a 52. Mm -hmm. I was there for one of them, and that – felt more special like that what felt like more of a like an electric atmosphere than what than Harden's performance uh last night I tell you what the, the building was buzzing most when the Knicks almost came back and won right right you know like that that was when it really got interesting 
and I, I mean, the whole time we're thinking about what Harden's scoring. Like, we're watching this, you know, we're looking at his total climb. He's got 20-something in the first quarter. You got 36 at halftime. You got to know he's... Yeah, I'm talking to the guys around me. It's like, well, every Knicks, you know, the Knicks score, and I'm like, all right, every Knicks basket increases the likelihood that Harden's going to be on the floor in the fourth quarter, right? <laughs> this is not going to be a blowout, and then we're going to get a close game, and he's going to get a chance to actually see how many points he scored. But he shot five for 20 from three point range. Right. So it never, he never, never felt like, Oh man, he's like, he, you know, he never, I don't know if he hit ever hit two in a row. Um, he had like a four point play in the first half and that was exciting. But 22 of the 61 came at the free throw line. There was some drive, like he was getting around dudes pretty easily and getting to the basket. And that was sort of the, the most interesting part of the performance. But like I said, like it, because of the way he plays maybe, and because we've become numbed, you know, like he walks into a gym and he's got 30 points already. <laughs> like I, I, it didn't, I mean, I was there. It was great. Like it was cool, but it wasn't, I don't know. It just, it wasn't the same kind of atmosphere. Like I said, as, as, as that one LeBron game I was at a few years ago, I don't know. Maybe that sounds stupid, but that's just, you know, that's just the way it felt. No, it, it doesn't sound stupid. It, it's interesting. I mean, you maybe you've been desensitized. I mean, you lived through <laughs> insanity. Like you said, you've seen LeBron come in there and drop double nickels twice. You know, Kobe's had a monster game. I don't know if you were at that one or not. I mean, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe you've just grown tired of James Harden abusing people the way he I mean he's, I mean it's it's like I said but it's also just the way he scores like yeah. like I said I mean if he if he was 10 for 20 from three point range right like that would have been you would have felt that more right but 5 for 20 from three like he, it's not like he ever you know had it going like there was no like oh man here he goes you know like it, it never was that it was just I don't know more um what's the word I'm looking for mechanical i guess you know? yeah instead of instead of it in, instead of it being you know electric and and just him catching fire i mean he took 38 shots you know yeah. and, and 25 free throws i'm i'm wondering if we're gonna get spent on this whole you know he's got 21 straight games with 30 or more points and nobody has done this at this level except for will in the history of the league. I'm wondering if we're going to get tired of it, the pursuit of it because of it's, you know, because it's James Harden and the way he, you know, he chucks him up. I mean, he's, I, I think if I'm not mistaken, I saw some ridiculous stat last night. He's working on a stretch of 263 straight points unassisted. Yeah. I mean, him, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah. I mean, there's, there was, there was at least one play where he, he cut. Oh yeah. There was a play at the end of, I want to say the first quarter, I think where it was almost an assisted bucket. Like, he he was being denied the ball, so he cut sort of back door, caught a pass, tossed up a floater. It, like, rolled off the rim. He got his own rebound and then hit a shot at the buzzer, at the, at the first quarter buzzer. So, like, if that first shot goes in instead of the second shot, yeah, then there's a, that's an assisted bucket. But, yeah, and, I mean, and it's, it's ridiculous. Um, I'm glad. I'm happy that Chris Paul is coming back soon. Just... <laughs> Not just for the, 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 the sake of the team. Like, right. you know, I, I feel like, okay, we can start to see what this team is really about once they start to get healthy again. I mean, Clint Capella is going to be out for uh, quite a while longer. Look, Eric Gordon, Eric Gordon made some plays last night that if he doesn't make those, sure. A, the, the, the big three, and then pressuring the ball, you know, when Noah Vonley's got on that last scenario. I mean, he, if, that, if Eric Gordon doesn't step up and do that shoot, they don't win the game. I mean, Harden can get his points, but they don't win. 
without somebody else making plays, you know. Of course, he gets open for that shot because of the attention uh, paid to Harden because they were denying yeah. Harden. I forget who it was. And then so Gordon Hardaway and, and, and used Harden and his and the guy denying Harden as his own screen as his screener. Yeah. Uh, his man sort of went under those two guys and then he just had a, an open three. I asked him after the game, I said, well, you know, because prior to that, T.J. Tucker had the – Shout out to Shaqton Shackton and Tucker. <laughs> one of the most <laughs> weirdest. <laughs> I looked – I was – we were watched it, and I was like, what is he doing? They were shielding himself. They showed, the re- showed the replay on the, on, the, uh, on the monitor next to us like five <laughs> times, and I just thought, like, what is he – what was he thinking? I asked Gordon, I was like, so what's the protocol on that? Like one dude makes a, you know, egregious blunder – and you basically save him by hitting the game-winning shot. Like, does he owe you dinner or anything like that? Like, I, 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 this is a question I had earlier in the season because there was a game earlier where, like, somebody on the Magic fouled a three-point shooter and allowed their, their opponent to, to go ahead by one or something like that in the final seconds, and then Evan Fournier hit a game-winner. And I was, like, wondering, like, what does that dude owe Evan Fournier? Like, is there a protocol? Like, you know, I owe you dinner on the next, you know, on the next – city we're in or something like that but Gordon's like ah you know it just happens we talked about it whatever you know I was curious because I was like man you just saved that dude's butt because you know obviously every game counts for the Rockets and and that would have been a, a brutal way to lose by letting up to the Knicks of all yeah I mean <laughs> PJ Tucker was working on a Shaqton Hall of Fame <laughs> stretch if he didn't get rescued from himself at the end of that game it's, Again, he was well, the one that got burned also for uh for one exactly. Trier's, yeah, Trier's Trier's go ahead bucket yeah. uh, prior to, or right after that, I think too. Yeah, yeah it's the Ro- the Rockets are fascinating. I mean, Mike D'Antoni's kind of I don't know how the hell we just did it. Post game press conferences are comedy, you know, because I mean just look at the rotation. It's just it's he's different. Just, it's, yeah, it's, he's trying anything. It's, it's makeshift. It's like they're, you know, they're taping together a rotation every night. And like Kenneth Fareed starting at center, Gary Clark coming out of nowhere, guys like, you know, Hartenstein contributing early in the season, other guys just sort of coming out of on and off the roster and, and playing right away. You know, like if you're on the roster and you're healthy, it's like you're playing unless your name is Brandon Knight, I guess. But, um, you know, it's the, the, the rotation tricks that they've had to play. You know, they played eight guys last night, and one of them, Gary Clark, only played nine minutes. So, I mean, it's 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 wild. Yeah. You're getting Kenneth Fareed and, and P.J. Tucker you're as your center in an important game. Yeah, welcome, welcome to the long, nasty grind of an NBA season where injuries and everything else take its, you know, take its toll. Victor Oladipo shoes up for the, just a terrible knee injury last night termed a serious injury to his right knee he's gonna have an mri today the pacers we don't know where they go from there but you know hoping for a full and uh i'm not even say speedy because i don't want to put that on him but certainly a full recovery uh for victor oladipo an all-star player guy who was in the midst of yet another fantastic season for the pacers and all that goes up in smoke last night non-contact injury with him just running down the floor and, and and it happens. Mike Conley and Mark Gasol are on the trading block in Memphis, which when we talked to Lang Whitaker earlier this year on the podcast about the Grizzlies, he was feeling great. I mean, they, the Grizzlies were thinking they had a chance to upset the order of things and, and crash the playoff party in the West. They're 19 and 29 now, Shoe, 14th in the West, and clearly ready to scrap this season for a rebuild. Real quick, just give me a yes or no answer. Is is there a market 
robust enough out there to move both of those guys in terms of a trade market? And if so, which one of them do you think gets moved first? That's a great question. I think Conley is a more attractive piece. You know, obviously there's a couple teams that don't have point guards, period, but those mm-hmm. teams aren't necessarily in the market for, for Conley, like a Orlando and Phoenix, New York, you know, teams that could obviously use a point guard but aren't in position to really compete right now. The one team that I thought would be a great fit was Indiana, actually, if they could sort of put together a package for Conley. Gasol is a tough one, you know, just because uh, he's got a player option for next year. And it's not clear if he if it's smart for him to, to exercise that or not. I think maybe, you know, with the struggles he's been going through, that maybe it's best for him to to exercise that option and stay under contract for another year at, at his current salary rather than go into free agency right now. So that's a question for any team that's trading for him. If he's just on an expiring deal, then it's a little bit easier. And there's not as much of a need for centers around the league as there is for, for playmakers as sure. Conley is. So um, I'll be fascinated to see what happens. You know, uh, Lang wasn't alone in thinking that a healthy Conley and a healthy Gasol makes that a playoff team, right. know, especially after 15 or 20 games or whatever it was when they were looking pretty good. Yeah. Just goes to show you how quickly things change in this league shoe with injuries. Anything can happen. Uh, a rough stretch turns the season upside down. There's a lot that can go wrong. In the Eastern Conference, we look at teams that have kind of been riding that roller coaster. And one of them is our, our autopsy team this week on the Hangtime Podcast, the Boston Celtics. And, and I love how much drama the Celtics have injected into their own season, thanks in, in large part to Kyrie Irving and his ability to rub his hands together and make drama out of seeming, you know, seemingly nothing. But he's, he's backed it up recently with his play when he's been on the court, obviously. Gary Washburn of the Boston Globe is joining us now on the Hangtime Podcast to talk about Kyrie and the Celtics. G. Wash, what's up, sir? Appreciate you joining us. Hey, no problem. Good to be here. I know you think the world is is round and that you believe in space travel and all this other stuff, so we'll avoid all of the conspiracy theories about the Celtics and <laughs> and just stick to the 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 raw facts that did we not give enough credence to how long it would take this group to develop the right kind of chemistry, you know, and just assume that they would hit the ground running with, with Kyrie and Gordon Hayward back in the mix? Or is there something more to the early season struggles they've endured in trying to get on the right page? Yeah, I think it was a lot going on. And I think that the Celtics kind of told us everything that we wanted to hear, you know, in terms of we've gotten to Boston all early in September. We're all playing five on five. Where Gordon Hayward's looking great. I mean, everything that I think they wanted to believe. Everybody's used to their, you know, everybody's okay with their roles. Everybody's, the change is going to be good. And Kyrie's looking great. And all these things that sounded good is what we were told. And I'm not saying that they were lying to us. I'm saying that once the game started and once things got serious, it wasn't that way. And, you know, Hayward was probably 40% of the player that he was when he was in Utah. And he's built that up since then. Terry Rozier has had trouble adjusting to the role, the reduced role after helping lead the team to the Eastern Conference Finals. You know, Jalen Brown struggled with these new emphasis on touching and screens and couldn't stay out of foul trouble. 
that affected his offense and affected his confidence. And they couldn't stop anybody or they were good stop anybody. They couldn't score. So it's so they had to make a change the starting lineup. I mean, all these things just went down. And I don't think anybody expected that. Maybe expecting Hayward to struggle a little bit, but no one thought that they could. This team wouldn't be able to score, and they would need to put Marcus Smart and Marcus Morris in the starting lineup. No one thought that Rozier and and Brown wouldn't take the next step, and so they have just spent 45 games trying to figure themselves out. Mm. And there's been some good stretches and some not so good stretches. Some, you know, two losses to Orlando, a loss, a home loss to Phoenix. I mean, a home loss to the Knicks, and then they've played well. Two wins over Toronto, a blowout win over Indiana, two wins over Philly. So they're, they've been a hard team to figure out. And it's gotten to the point where you don't know what team was going to show up each night. And now they're getting a little bit more consistent. Mm-hmm. But this it, it'll be an interesting stretch over the All-Star break where they get the Lakers, they get the Warriors on Saturday. We'll see how they respond, but it, it, it's just it's been a, it's been a fascinating season, and not necessarily for the right reasons that Celtics fans wanted. Right, plain and simple, Gary. How much of this does Kyrie Irving own because of the way he's spoken publicly about this team, the way he's acted in the heat of the moment during some games? How much of the issues that have plagued this team are on Kyrie's shoulders? And is that fair to to, to throw yeah, him some, in that some. I don't think I think he's I think he's been very good this year. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at his defensive numbers, if you look at his offensive rebounds, he's almost if I ha, has eclipsed his career high already in offensive rebounds, which means he's following his shot, and which means he's chasing down, you know, other guys' shots. He's giving the team extra possessions. He's played well. It really hasn't been Kyrie as much as it's been their inability to consistently score besides Kyrie. Hayward struggles because they gave him such a prominent role at the beginning. He started, and I think that was a little too much for him at this point. And, and you know, will, will he start again this season? Probably not because I think they're in a good place maybe next year. But I don't know if Kyrie takes a chunk of the responsibility. I think it was just basically guys not knowing what the heck to do now that this new team came on. And that last year, Brown and Rozier were starters. They were playing major minutes. Tatum was the primary offensive player. And Tatum has had to learn things the whole summer with Kobe. He started doing Kobe-like things early in the season, but, but he ain't Kobe. <laughs> and, and 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 people, you know, it looked good. I mean, the, the step back one foot, 19 fadeaway footer looked great, but it wasn't going in. You know, it's a pretty move, but the ball, you know, Kobe, Kobe be making those shots. And, you know, Tatum's got to learn that, be more selective. That was that was another thing that, that I think, you know, irked some teammates was, was Tatum's kind of one-on-one fascination. Mm-hmm. But I think that they've um, – kind of come together. They, this is not a team that, that doesn't like each other or anything like that. But I do think that they definitely had to figure each other out. Speaking of that, Gary, Kyrie Irving clearly sees himself as the leader of this team, just the way he talks and, you know, maybe talks a little bit too much about it. 
So my, my question, though, is do the other guys see Kyrie Irving as the leader of this team? Do like, do they, have they bought into whatever Kyrie is, is saying on a daily basis about being a leader and having to teach these young guys how to win like LeBron taught me, yada, yada, yada? Like, is that more him than them, you know, like as far as his perspective versus their perspective? Yeah, I mean, I do think they view him as a leader. I mean, this team, this is a very interesting locker room where – you don't have a lot of your older guys. I mean, Horford's your your most OG player, right? I mean, it was funny in the locker room last week. Tatum Tatum says to to Horford, Horford "Yeah, man, they did. They, uh, you know, the Celtics did ten, the ten year. You know, what the the photo thing? What they call that? The, oh, the ten year uh, challenge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, you know, he goes, yeah. Al, everybody did the ten. You know, the Celtics did the ten year challenge with us, and I noticed." Ten years ago, man, you were still in the league, and and, and, and um, everybody started laughing. He goes, "Man, I was ten years old." <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, Horford is considered like the super old. You know, say you know what I'm talking about. He he the triple OG, right? <laughs> but but Horford doesn't lead. By, he doesn't lead vocally. He leads by example. You know, Horford is a guy who's very, you know, mild-mannered. He's going to read. He's a kind of an old-school NBA player. The guys we used to see in the 90s, the guys who would just do their job, read the paper, read the Wall Street Journal, whatever, you know, before the headphones came in, before, before Beats by Dre took over the league. You know, Horford's just a very, like, do what I do. I'm a, I'm a total pro I'm not going to stress to you how to be a pro. I'm going to show you how to be a pro. Okay. I think some young young guys probably prefer that kind of leadership. Yeah, they would. Than, than hearing somebody, you know, talking about it. Yeah, and then you got Kyrie, though, who's more accomplished even though he's only 26. You know, he's an Olympian. He's an NBA champion. He's been to four finals. So, or sorry, three finals. So, he has more stripes than Horford, who's never been to a finals. So, Kyrie kind of relates to the younger guys more because he's, you know, even though he seems like he's been in the league 14 years, he's only 26. And so he is taken. And then the Duke kind of tie with, with uh, Tatum, he has a locker next to Brown. So he's kind of assumed that role. And I do think some of the young guys, but I don't know many young guys that don't, that, that want to hear leadership and want, uh, want some dude to tell him what to do. You know, like, I don't, I, you know, tell me a guy who's like, oh, I, I love when he just tells me that I'm messing up. I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know one guy in, in the league now or then who thoroughly enjoys that process, right, of being told that they could get, they could be better. Yeah. Um, so I think that he has taken that role, and I think that one thing I noticed his first year in Boston, he never liked to refer – to those players as the young guys or my guys, things like that. Because why? That's what LeBron referred to him as. My yeah, guys, yeah. the young guys. Kyrie hated that. So he said, I'm not going to refer to them as the young guys. Then suddenly this year, he started referring to them as the young guys. And what is that commercial where it says you're becoming just like your father? <laughs> That's exactly what I think would happen with Kyrie. He was like, man, I'm becoming like LeBron. Like, this is kind of crazy. I'm saying the things that LeBron said, you know, what, what they say, say cool, you know, like your dad would be things, if your, your father or your mother would say, you know, you don't think fat meat is greasy, things like that. And you start saying that stuff. 
Yeah. And you're like, wait a minute. I, I can't believe I just said that to my child, you know? Overnight. And, you morph into your parents, yeah. Yeah, you just take a step towards your parents every day, you, yeah. you know? Your parents are like, you know, just like, you know, come to me. And you're like, yes. And you're just taking these steps. And suddenly you are your father, right? And I think that's what happened with Kyrie, where he kind of realized that he was becoming more like LeBron. And I think that might encourage him to call LeBron and appreciate LeBron more. And I would give, I'd pay my yearly salary for a gift of LeBron's facial expression when he saw the number that showed up on his phone. Or, you know, when he saw Kyrie's number light up with his phone, I just would love to get that expression of LeBron's face. Like I'd love to know if he had Kyrie's name plugged into his phone. Yeah, exactly. Or was it just a random, random like, New Jersey number? Yeah, was it, like, just a New Jersey number that came up, right? I just wonder if, like, he's, like, a little, like, caught up in the narrative. The way he said it, too, like, oh, I, you know, I, I called LeBron. I actually called LeBron, you know, yesterday or whatever. And I, I – and like I know uh, a couple of people who who are on this podcast who might have been rolling their eyes a little bit at some of the <laughs> comments he made both then and then the previous one in Orlando. Um, so I just wonder if like any of the other of the of his teammates might have been also rolling their eyes as well. But I think there's some guys that roll their eyes. I think, that, but I think there's some guys that are in that locker room that are kind of hard headed and that are typical young players. And that's not a knock against them. It's just, it's just reality that this is a league that young guys think they, they know it all. And, you know, do they look up to Kyrie? Of course. But they do they want to be told they're not getting it done? No, of course not. And they're going to resent that. Right. And I think Kyrie had to step back on the, the young guys. These kids don't know what they're doing. And he had this, I, and, I, and I think that was a, a smart move to acknowledge that. Yes, I, I agree. Now, I, I thought he did the right thing. I just didn't agree with his methods. <laughs> But I thought it was – no, I'm serious. But I thought it was – because I, I went off, G-Watch. I ran it on here after his initial comments. I was like, seriously? I was like, this dude is – he's railing against everything he was in Cleveland. Like, it was comical, the irony of him moaning and groaning about having to teach somebody how to win. It was like, can we turn the clock back and show all the clips of LeBron fussing at him and, you know, going off on him in moments – you know, in tight games when he's trying to explain to Kyrie, you know, you need to do this and not that. And, and Kyrie bristling at, at anybody telling him what he should be doing with his, you know, never mind the fact that he didn't win anything until LeBron showed back up in Cleveland. Boston is one of my, and, and I think she would agree, it's one of my favorite basketball towns come springtime, you know, in terms of nobody does, enjoys the playoffs more than those fans in Boston, given the history of that team and, and the success they've had over the years. You got the Warriors coming to town for, you know, a, a monster showdown. Is the city on the same vibe right now as that team, Gary, in terms of knowing where they are, how long it took to get here, and maybe what might be in store? I mean, they, are they hopeful that this team gets back to whatever it is they believed was going to be the end goal? For, for a team that's been to the conference finals the past two years? Well, uh, two things here. One, there's a growing level of excitement, and there's kind of – I mean, there, there's been some disenchantment over some of the home losses and some of the bad performances. The, 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 the loss to Milwaukee where they trailed by 26 in the first half, and there's been some 
real kind of like, what, what's going on with you guys? What, what's the problem here? So there's been some disenchantment, but there's some growing excitement. I think the crowd, is, the, the fans have been patient. But two, say, cool, this is right now, this is a Patriots town. <laughs> and so once, you know, February 3rd is over with and people can kind of shift their focus to basketball, like the Celtics are still the number two, number three story here. So there is a, like, it's early kind of mentality where they'll get it together. And, and Saturday will be a very good atmosphere. The fans will come out. I mean, they, they always sell it. They have a great fan base, but it will be a fever pitch. You got an 830 start on a Saturday night. So you got, you know, plenty of time to have a couple of adult beverages before the game and you'll have, you know, no football. And so you'll have the let's go Patriots chance and, you know, it'll be it'll be a fever pitch on Saturday. It'll be great atmosphere for the for the Celtics Warriors. But I think the fans are, are have been under have been you know patient with them, and they understand though that it's time to get get on this road here. I mean, you're five games back in the East. You don't want to have that fifth seed. Unfortunately, we don't know what's going to happen with Indiana now and losing all the depot. But you've got to jump start, jump over them, Philadelphia and Milwaukee and Toronto to get to number one, or at least try to get that second or third seed and get a home playoff series and, and then go from there. So they got their work cut out for them because of some of their struggles. I think the fans here have been patient, but they realize it's time to get on get on and, and get this thing done quick quickly gary speaking of the 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 east the top of the east with philly uh milwaukee toronto is there a matchup that the celtics like more than others is there a matchup that they don't like um i know they've they've dominated philly obviously over the last uh this season and, and last season but the one they've only played one game against philly with jimmy butler and the sixers win that game if jj reddick's shot at the end of the fourth quarter rolls in instead of rolls out um so is is that like is that matchup maybe not as comfortable for them uh necessarily with butler is there is there a milwaukee or toronto that they they prefer not to play you think i think they'd rather play philadelphia i don't i mean i, I think even with oladipo they were not they were not afraid of indiana and philadelphia they 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 feel good about that matchup Milwaukee and Toronto are interesting. They can't do like the rest of the league. They can't do anything out of the Kumpo. They just, they can't, you know, he, he either scores or gets to the free throw line every time. But you know, that seven game series last year was pretty epic, but this is a better team, Milwaukee team. Now they're one and one against the Bucks and both games are at home. So they got two more games at Milwaukee. So we'll see how that fares. Toronto, they don't play well up there. Um, they never really have under the Brad Stevens era. So that would be an interesting series. I, I think their goal is to, to have one, you know, one, you don't want to play both those teams in the playoffs. You know, you want to get a seed where you can avoid one or two, both those teams until the conference finals. I mean, they, their worst case scenario would be Milwaukee in the semis. And then uh, let's say the third seed or something where you get Milwaukee in the semis in Toronto in the final, you, you would want, in their case, to hopefully avoid one of those teams. So I think they would rather play much play, rather play Philadelphia or Indiana in the semis and then one of the Milwaukee-Toronto in the conference finals. But, you know, it, it's interesting. Milwaukee or Toronto, neither of them have taken that skid, have had, had that skid yet, you know, where they've lost five in a row or anything like that. Milwaukee has lost two in a row. <laughs> All season. Yeah, exactly. So it's hard to determine whether 
either going to let go of that number one and two spot. You know, I don't think I don't think I know Milwaukee's been out west. I think they go again. Um, I think Toronto's already kind of finished most of their Western Conference games. You know, out west, the Celtics still have a Western Conference trip um, to make. That's going to be pretty tough because it includes, you know, Golden State, SAC, which is not a give me anymore, and then both LA teams. Um, so that should be interesting. So, you know, if I'm the Celtics and with 35 games left, 30, 36 games left in their schedule, you got to plan to try to get that number two seed, maybe that, you know, and, and you got to maybe understand that it might, number one, might not happen. And you might not have home court throughout the playoffs as everyone predicted, predicted they would. But some of these early slip-ups, you know, have just have really cost them. Gary, one last thing before we let you get out of here, and we appreciate you taking some time out, man. Always good to talk to you about the Celtics and the league in general. We know that the trade deadline is coming up, and that's historically been a time when Danny Ainge, even if he doesn't pull the, the trigger on deals, his phone might be the busiest in the league the past few years in terms of people inquiring about all the assets he has. You know, the Celtics may be exploring – opportunities that are out there does it make sense at all for the Celtics to entertain making a move given the makeup of that roster right now and what they know they have in terms of balance of young stars you know vets do you do you become an active participant if you're Danny Ainge at this deadline or do you play the game and sit back and and just kind of enjoy the madness yeah I think that if something were to fall in their lap I think obviously Danny's going to be looking. I don't think that they need to make a major deal or shake this thing up. I mean, they could use another shooter off the bench. They could use someone who could knock down. But I don't think that that would require a trade. And the question is, well, who do you give up? A guy like Rose, you know, Rozier becomes a guy that people have talked about. He's a restricted free agent this summer. So if you're going to take on Rozier as a team, you would probably want to sign him or you he would probably be someone you want to have for the future. I don't think you add Rozier, you know, just to help your playoff, but it would have to be probably a team that's looking for a point guard that maybe you want to, wants to add him on the cheap or something or add him for a veteran and then re-sign him in the summer or, you know, let him go to you know, hey, let him go to free agency in a year or whatever. That would be the only player. I mean, they're not moving Marcus Morris. He's a free agent this summer. He's been so valuable to them. And in the rest of their players, I mean, no one's – I mean, you know, Hayward is a guy that I think they're eventually going to have to think about his salary in, in, in the future next year and the year after because he's going to be making that $30 million and – you know, you know his role. Who knows what his role would be, and whether he will actually get back to the the Hayward of old. And so, what do you do with that when you're trying to maybe add a quote unquote Anthony Davis or another frontline player, and you've got his salary on the books and Kyrie's salary, and if Horford opts out, he'll re-sign for a lesser salary, but it'll still be significant. Then you've got to eventually pay Brown and Tatum. So they got a lot of things to figure out down the road. But this trade deadline, I don't see him making an obvious deal. I don't see a player that I'd say, yeah, he, he needs to, they'll ship him out. You know, Rosie would probably be the one, but the restricted free agency makes it kind of a little bit more difficult. But they do need to add a shooter. That's that's what I would think. A, a guy like a Jody Meeks or somebody who, you know, can hit the, but you can sign him off the street. I mean, right. three-pointers, you know, who can come off the bench and hit threes 
you know, and help spread the floor for your second unit. Right. Gary, John Schumann loves to stump me and our guest every Thursday with a Schumann stat. Shu, do you have something that you think could withstand the double shot power of me and, and Gary Washburn right now? Uh, I'll try. <laughs> All right. So I was, I was writing something about the Warriors today, and I was doing a little research. So the, the Houston Rockets have taken attempted 208 mid-range shots this season. That's um, by far the fewest in the league, mid-range being between the paint and the three-point line. So they've taken 208. I want how many this is a two-part question. First of all, how many players do you think how many players do you think have taken more than 208 mid-range shots this season? How many individual players? Individual players have take attempted more mid-range shots than the Houston Rockets. Oh, uh, wow. Well. I'd say uh, I'll throw out there like 18. No. Seiko, you got a guess? Uh, I will say 40. <laughs> Gary wins again. Uh, the answer is 10. Wow. The answer is 10. Wow. So the question, question now is how many of those 10 can you, can you name? Zero. I can name. <laughs> <laughs> More mid-range. Who takes I mean, mid-range? I'm guessing them right off the bat. Right. They're number one and number two <laughs> with 364 and 331. Mm. There's also on this list of 10, two other pairs of teammates. Uh, Clay Thompson and... Kevin Durant. Correct. Number three and number four. Durant is three with 311. Clay Thompson is four with 310. Uh, one other set of teammates. He's, he's uh, high profile. Both are all-stars. Who is one and two? DeRozan and Aldridge. Okay. So it's DeRozan, Aldridge, Durant, Thompson are one through four. Okay. You said all-star teammates? All-star teammates. Uh, Western Conference all-star Western teammates. Western Conference all-star teammates. George? Paul oh, George, yeah. yes, and yeah, Russell Westbrook. So George is uh, seventh, 223. Westbrook is 10th with 217. Uh, so we got four other players. One is a rookie. Luka Dutch. Lottery pick. Uh, a rookie lottery pick. Yep. Ugh. Eastern Conference rookie lottery pick. Mm, mid-range shots. Uh, mid-range shots this dude does he's a point guard but he doesn't pass very much <laughs> uh takes a lot of mid-range who's a rookie point guard number fifth he's number five on the list right behind clay thompson actually uh, who's a rookie point trey young nope oh man okay. nope i don't think so uh i'm trying to think of a rookie. trey young passes the ball. i'm trying to think of another rookie point guard in the east this in that kind of minute starter been starting most of the season i believe May have been coming off the bench for the first couple games, but has been starting. I'm going. His team has traded away some some of their players, and it's on a very very bad team. Well, that narrows it down. Uh, on the worst team in the league. Oh, Sexton. Colin Sexton. Right. So he's number five. Uh Number six is a Western Conference player, uh, borderline All Star, but never been an All Star. Uh, C.J. McCollum. CJ McCollum, correct. And he's one of the, he's the best he's one of the best shooters, mid range shooters out of this right. group at, at fifty one percent. Uh number eight is Eastern Conference Reserve. Uh comes in and shoots a lot. Mostly sh- known for shooting threes, but he's got a ton of uh Eastern uh mid range mm-hmm. shots. Must be tough. Southeast division uh reserve. Nope. 
Used to play for the Raptors back in the day. Terrence Ross? Terrence Ross, yes. And then last one is MVP candidate in the Eastern Conference. Most of his shots are uh, off the dribble. A lot of pull-up mid-range. He gets the ball a lot late in games, and he likes to get to his spot, which is sort of right side of the floor, mid-range, 15-footer or so. Gary's probably seen a lot of him, those shots. Yeah, Kyrie. Yeah. No, no. Against wow. the Celtics. Against the Celtics, he is. Oh, against the Celtics. Okay. Yeah. Eastern Conference MVP candidate. Kawhi. Kawhi Leonard, yeah. yeah. So yeah. Rosen, Aldridge, Durant, Thompson, Colin Sexton, McCollum, Paul George, Terrence Ross, Kawhi Leonard, and Russell Westbrook are the 10 players who have taken more mid-range shots than the, than the Houston Rockets. Rockets. Houston, wow. Come on, Houston. I mean, we know what you like. But, uh, <laughs> it's amazing. I talked to Dan Tony about it last night. It's amazing. Like, we know they shoot threes, right? But what's amazing is that they don't bite. Like, so the opponent runs them off the line. And then they've they're, they've they've got like ten feet of space, right, between uh, maybe a, a guy, a defender at the rim, and and, and they where they threes, get run yeah. off the line, and they do not bite on those on taking those like eight to twelve footers. They just don't do it. They just go to the basket, and if they can't get to the basket, then they kick it out to the next guy, and then he does the same thing until they get a three or a layup. It's amazing like the discipline that they have. He basically says that when guys take mid range shots, the other guys make fun of them <laughs> on the roster. <laughs> Well, well, the only time they do it is like late in the clock, basically, yeah. or Harden. You know, Harden and and Chris Paul obviously has the license to to shoot as many mid range shots. Yeah, that's that's yeah. interesting. But everybody else, they just have rem- remarkable discipline as far as not taking those like eight to twelve footers, no floaters, nothing like that. That's yeah, fascinating. Sometimes, and other times, it's frustrating as hell watching it. Yeah, but. I don't know. I, I'm not going to knock it since it's working for him. It's certainly working for James Harden. G-Wash, appreciate you, man. Thanks, guys. Enjoy reading your stuff as always. Um, and we'll see you down the road here this season. Okay. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, man. From the current Celtics to the Celtics' glorious past, got a chance to talk to Gary Pomerantz, historian, journalist, and Stanford University lecturer, about his new book, The Last Past, Bob Cousy. Bill Russell, the Celtics, and what matters in the end. Great book that he's got out. Got a chance to chat with him about that here recently. Uh, Take a listen. So, Gary, as always, the Boston Celtics are a fascinating read. You know, the history of the franchise, some of the best, you know, richest in the history of sports, really. But two guys in, in Bob Cousy and Bill Russell that have mythic, legendary status, of course. What? Was it about this relationship between these two guys that made you want to dive in and do a book about this? Well, because it's really about the deeper meaning of life and what matters to us in the end. I mean, when we think about Bill Russell and Bob Cousy, that's the Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig of this great Celtics dynasty. It's hard to believe that Cousy's 90 now and Russell is 84. Um, a lot of times passed, and and Cousy is a has been going through a period of self examination. You know, he's closing circles with the people who mattered most to him in his life, and that includes Bill Russell. And and Cousy's got some regrets about the seven seasons they spent together as teammates. Hmm. The name of the book is The Last Pass: Cousy Russell, The Celtics, and What Matters in the End. It's out now, um, and it explores the relationship between these two guys. 
on that dynasty Celtics squad for the seven seasons, as you mentioned, they played together. Gary, you spent so much time with Bob Cousy, you know, 53 interviews over the course of two and a half years. Even with all the research you probably did on the front end, how much more did you learn about the man spending that kind of time with him? Well, a lot. And and it's really just about his intellectual and his emotional depth. I mean, you know, the last pass, the title of this book refers to a letter that Cousy wrote to Bill Russell in uh, in the middle of 2016. So two and a half, three years ago now. And, um, you know, Cousy has had these regrets I mentioned. His regrets are twofold. One, uh, that he didn't speak out publicly against the racism that Russell was facing in Boston and around the league. And two, that as captain of the Celtics, Cousy did not pull Russell aside and say, Russ, you know, I've got your back. It's important to know that that Cousy was considered one of the good guys by the league's early African-American players. And yet still this this regret, you know, their coach, Red Auerbach, another legend. I mean, you talk about three disparate personalities, Auerbach, Russell and Cousy all thrown together. You know, Auerbach was a fair minded man, but he was also a pragmatist. And so in those seasons between when Cousy and Russell were, were teammates between 1956 and 63, Auerbach is telling them, you know, don't, don't be controversial. Don't speak out uh, about politics or civil rights or whatever. We don't want to alienate fans. We're trying to, to fill Boston Garden, not empty it. And so that's sort of the, what, what Cousy is, you know, this time period that, that they're together. And, um, and, and he's trying to reconcile all of it now. Bob Cousy at his age, Gary, was it a point for him to get this all out as he got older and maybe wanting to reconcile this, not only publicly, but in his own mind, just making sure that he didn't take this, you know, to, to, you know, beyond where it needed to go. He wanted to make sure he got this out while he and Russell still had a chance to communicate about it. And I know that doesn't mean they're close and, and, you know, coffee buddies or anything, but just having an opportunity to clear the air, was that important for him at this age and stage of his life? Well, in short, yes, very important. I mean, it's rare in American life for a 90-year-old white man to reconsider race and how it played out in his life. And that's what Cousy's doing. You know, he he wrote this letter, this mea culpa letter, page and a half, handwritten uh, to Russell, apologizing that he hadn't done more and, and, and saying he wished they'd been closer uh, as teammates over the, you know, the, the ensuing decades. I mentioned Ruth and Gehrig, you know, Ruth and Gehrig never lived to old age. They both died young, unfortunately. And, and, and so they never had the chance to have this conversation. You know, when you're a young man, you aspire to be great. And when you're an old man, you aspire to be a good man, you know, you, and, and that's what Cousy I think is doing here. He closed circles with his wife, you know, taking care of her in her last years when she had dementia closed circles with his daughter by selling all of his memorabilia and giving them the proceeds. And now he had that one last circle of close with Bill Russell. I said to Cousy, I said, why does Russell matter so much to you? And, and, and what he said, in, in effect, was, though we only spent seven years together out of my 90 years, those weren't just any seven years. And Bill Russell wasn't just any teammate. You know, Russell won his five MVP awards. We all know the 11 rings he won, NBA champion, and his career capstone came in 2011 when Barack Obama presented Russell with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the American equivalent of knighthood. So, yes. so Russell matters. Did Cousy share at all what 
the response was from Russell in terms of whatever communication he he had with him after he sent the letter was there an acknowledgement and you know kind of a, a clearing of the air on on Russell's side after receiving that letter well Russell is not in great health number one um, but Russell did respond Cousy waited wrote the letter sent it to Russell's home in in the Seattle area in Mercer Island and waited a year and then two years and then two and a half years later a long time <laughs> The phone rings at Cousy's house on a Sunday night, and Cousy looks down on caller ID and sees it's, it's area code 206, Seattle area. Um, he has a daughter there, but he knows it's not her number, so, so he picks up and he hears an old voice say, Bob, it's Bill Russell. I'm calling to see how you're doing. And, and um, you know, they talked for, you know, maybe 10 or 12 minutes. Their teammate Frank Ramsey had passed away not long before that. They talked about that. And, and Cousy said, Russ, did you get my letter? And Russell said, you know, yes, I did. And, and he didn't elaborate on it. And, and they just kept talking about other things. And the conversation, you know, ended. And, and I know from Cousy's side that the call meant a great deal to him. But I also know that Cousy's odyssey had reached that that in point of, of significance in the mere writing of the letter. And, um, and, and so, um, you know, is it closure? Well, look, no, I don't know that it's closure, but it was meaningful. It was significant, even talking only for 10 or 12 minutes. You know, say life doesn't always have a Disney ending, yeah. right? You know, these guys, they respect each other. They were business colleagues. They did something remarkable. And, uh, and, you know, athletes, as they grow old, tend to embellish or burnish the stories they tell about themselves. But that's not what Cousy's doing. To the contrary, he's drawing attention to what he believes was a flaw, that he didn't speak out for Russell, that he didn't pull him aside and say, I got your back. And, and I think what he's saying is, this is who I was. And it's his, you know, his final declaration. I should have done more. Yeah. It's a great, it's a great book. Um, I, I got a chance to kind of really pour through it in a short amount of time, which I love to do, Gary. And this again is some fantastic reading. The Last Pass: Cousy Russell, the Celtics, and what matters in the end. Gary Pomerantz, historian, journalist, and Stanford University lecturer, joining us to talk about it here on the Hang Time Podcast. We appreciate it, Gary, and we enjoy it, and we'll be sure to enjoy all your work coming in the future. Thank you so much. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's great to talk with you. Appreciate Gary Pomerantz taking some time to talk about the illustrious history of the Boston Celtics, Bob Cousy, Bill Russell, and that relationship in completely different time period. But now we're getting a chance to chew it up once more about the perfect player on NBA TV and a fascinating uh, notion of how to build the perfect player with today's superstars in the NBA. And last week we had Handles and Kyrie Irving, who we talked about earlier with Gary Washburn as well, was the winner in that category. This week, it's most athletic between Giannis Antetokounmpo, LeBron James, and Russell Westbrook. Greg Anthony and I chopped this up on Game Time Live last night. I went with Giannis as my most athletic, which we we had a hard time getting over shoe what exactly is the definition of athleticism. You know, is it the guy who jumps the highest or can run the fastest or is it the guy who has the best 
instincts athletically and, and the most versatile skill set. I mean, it's, it's hard to to put a, a fence around it when you're trying to figure it out. But of those three guys, which one would you say qualifies as the most athletic between Giannis, LeBron, and Russell Westbrook? Uh, I'm going to eliminate Antetokounmpo first because – What? Because it's a combination of athleticism and length. Like his his size has something to do with it. Like he's incredible. Yeah, he's an incredible athlete. But like his length is what makes him so special. The combination of the athleticism and the length. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm gonna throw a, a, a wild card in there because you can't. You gotta, I'm, well, I'm just, just gonna you gotta. say this right now because if <laughs> if a dude can jump up in the air, bring his knees up towards his chest. Put the ball under his rear end and then <laughs> throw it over his head and dunk it. That might be the most athletic thing I've ever seen on a basketball court. And I know it was in the dunk contest and not in a real game. But mm-hmm. Aaron Gordon, uh, I don't know how you could be more athletic than that, what I just described, doing what I did that. But all right, so LeBron and, and Westbrook. Mm-hmm. Westbrook is. Um, a little bit more explosive, a little bit faster end to end, right? Um, okay. But with LeBron's athleticism, like, and I, I don't want to, I want to be able to separate his strength maybe from his athleticism because I, I try I, my point in eliminating Antetokounmpo was separating his length with his, his right. athleticism. Right. Um, but still, I think LeBron has the athleticism, but with also a, a little bit more coordination i want to say or skill mm-hmm. within it you know like whereas west i call it athletic instincts like you know he's got yeah the... yeah so i would guess i would go with lebron um mm-hmm. especially if i could take lebron from like three years ago or you know instead of right now but 30 <laughs> year old lebron is to the 34 year old lebron yeah i guess because i as 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 inc- like as as much of a incredible athlete as Westbrook is and uh, we've said it on before like we can't like as much as we can criticize him for decision making and shot making or whatever like just to watch him every every game and just play as hard as he does as an and intensely as he does is something special but I feel like with LeBron there's just a little bit more control within the athleticism that makes him um you know maybe maybe the most special athlete we've ever seen good point I I just I'm still wrestling with this idea that I think we always associate athleticism with how high you jump or how fast you run. When I think sometimes it's it's more about the coordination and the gracefulness of a guy. And that's why I think Giannis is... Yeah, but to be able to jump really high and then be able to do things in the air. Sure, sure. But Giannis's ability to me to to be that athletic and and have that length to me makes his overall athleticism even more remarkable. I think that's normally a guy's his size wish they could be as athletic. He moves like a guy half his size. And I think that's what makes his overall athleticism so startling. I mean, he's unbelievable for a guy his size. I think Joel Embiid is is much the same, you know, in terms of a behemoth of a guy who, who moves yeah. so graceful, you know, so gracefully for a guy, his, you know, for that big. Yeah, like, like going back to Akeem, I remember um, yes. when – Dwight Howard was like going to getting lessons from Akeem. Like he was, you know, he would go train with Akeem or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you'd watch, they show a little bit of film of it. And then you realize that like the touch that Akeem had, like with his, with his shot, like he would do his, his 
dream shake or whatever, or a spin move or go into a turnaround. And he just had remarkable touch, like from, from, from like five to 15 feet or whatever it was where the ball just floated off his hands. And, and, and like Dwight Howard was never, ever going to ever be able to replicate that. No, and so that's no. part of it as well. Yeah. And, and I, going back to LeBron, I think about that game winner he had against Toronto. I think it was game three of the conference semis last year where he's going, going, full, yeah, going full court and, and yeah, on, on the left side of the paint and sort of fading away from the basket and then tossing up that, that shot off that soft shot off the glass to win the game like that, like, you know, the athleticism, but then the coordination and the touch to be able to, to, to make that shot is something that I don't know if anybody else has. Yeah. It's it's remarkable stuff. Um, you can vote on NBA TV's Twitter account until noon Eastern on Friday this week, the most athletic between Giannis Antetokounmpo, LeBron James and Russell Westbrook on the perfect player on NBA TV. So make sure you check it out and vote. Big shout out to Gary Washburn of the Boston Globe. Uh, appreciate him coming on to talk about the Celtics break them down for us. Gary Pomerantz as well for coming on and talking about the last pass, his fantastic book on Bob Cousy, Bill Russell, the Celtics, and what matters in the end. It's out now. Check that out. Uh, we'll be back on Monday with another episode of the Hangtime Podcast. Don't forget that the latest Kia Race of the MVP ladder drops on Friday on NBA.com. And you can also check out Jared Greenberg and I going back and forth about it on Tim Before Tip on NBA TV at 6.30 Eastern on Friday. Be sure to subscribe to Hang Time on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts for new episodes all season long. Don't forget to leave a review, and we'll see you right here next time on the Hang Time Podcast.